can tell you this. It is a story that has uh, kind of kept the eye of ours peripherally for the last couple of years. We thought maybe there would be charges, and then there weren't. And then with public blowback, the uh, investigators in London, Ontario, opened up the case once again when it came to five former Team Canada players that allegedly sexually assaulted a young lady uh, shortly after they won their championship. They went to a gala and, again, allegedly met up with this uh, young lady in a room and proceeded to assault her. So to talk about this, as we delve into the fact that now these five players have been summoned by that police department to come and surrender to police to face these charges, Julie McFarland, um, distinguished law professor at the University of Windsor and co-founder of the Can't Buy My Silence campaign for change to the law on the misuse of NDAs, Julie, good afternoon. Hello there, Taz. Oh, sorry, Rob. <laughs> That's me. I'll take it. Uh, I, I, I want to get into this really quickly, Julie, because I think it is something that has really caught a lot of us by surprise in the fact that yeah. we're, we're talking about current NHL players and players that are playing around the globe that were summoned in London to face these charges. Uh, are you surprised that we got to this uh, portion of, the, uh, of finding justice in some way, shape or form? Well, I am somewhat surprised, but I think, as you said in your intro, it's very much because of the public blowback about this. And, you know, let me be clear so that people understand this. It's not that uncommon, I'm afraid, for um, someone to go to the police and then an organization or an institution, um, which, you know, is, is, is the host, if you like, to whoever it was allegedly assaulted them will say to the police no no we'll do our own investigation we'll resolve it don't don't do any investigation don't charge and that was exactly what happened in this case so the police kind of gave it back to hockey canada and we all know what happened then there was a resolution but there was a non-disclosure agreement signed so you know it just got worse basically but i do want people your listeners to understand that this kind of back and forth between the police and private organizations or public ones for that matter is not untypical. And I think that it's a really concerning thing. Julie. So she went after them for over $3 million. Hockey Canada settled with her. I'm curious to know logistically here, obviously there's civil and there's criminal there's, you know, Mm -hmm. apples and oranges here, but once you've quote settled, would you not sign something that says I won't go to court against these guys in any way, shape or form? Yeah, but you can't restrict somebody's right to them bring a case in the criminal courts because, in fact, it's not the victim bringing the case. I know this is going to sound very archaic, Rob, but actually it's the state. It's the people. In a criminal case, it's the people versus the accused so that she will have signed something saying she will not bring further litigation against them civilly because she's got a civil settlement. But that doesn't mean that there can't be some kind of a criminal trial which is in the name of the people. So, Julie, one of the things that I have been, as I've been looking at this this afternoon, as the news has been kind of trickling out here, um, she's facing not just five young men that uh, allegedly sexually assaulted her. She's taking on a brand that is really a heritage brand in this country. I would assume that that's a little overwhelming. Well, yes. I mean, I think it shows a great deal of, of courage to do this. I mean, and this might go to one of the things that is still very mysterious. And as you say, the news is just trickling out. But there is at the moment um, no disclosure of the names of the five players, although I think it's inevitable, just like it was with the NDA, that this will eventually come out. But the reason 
um, that somebody isn't identified when they're being charged, the only reason is not to identify the victim. So the police felt that identifying the players would somehow identify the victim, then she could ask them um, not, not to name them. And I wonder whether that's partly because, you know, she's obviously sick of publicity and at this point wants to take every step she can to protect her own identity. We'll just have to wait and see. Yeah, I would imagine with this already, the way that it's kind of spread like wildfire, that's going to be really hard. It's almost like putting toothpaste back yeah. in the tube. Um, well, I know. I know. That's exactly <laughs> right. Um, Julie McFarland's joining us here on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Kind enough to join us here. Uh, she's a law professor out at the University of Windsor. She has been a very big proponent of you know change and definitely something that I think a lot of people should read her book when it comes to Camp by My Silence. I, I wanted well actually it's a campaign. Julie, before I let you go, obviously, you know, we want to see justice in whatever way, shape, or form it takes. But what is what is the end result of this? What's the end game? Obviously this is now the community coming back saying, hey, we want this police um, we want law enforcement to circle back and get this right. What's the end goal? Well, I think that what it does is, it, and, and in this way, it really, even though the story is a terrible one, Rob, that it really helps our campaign, Can't Buy My Silence, to warn people that non-disclosure agreements are being used secretly to hide so many um, assaults that are taking place. And you've got a kind of parallel going on with the publication ban on the, on the identity of these individuals. And I think that it's really sparked because hockey, you know, is the holy grail. I think it's really provoked some indignation amongst people. We're certainly aware um, of NDAs being asked for at a much lower level in Hockey Canada or at a club junior level uh, or, you know, rather leagues that are amateur leagues. And, you know, it's just a really bad practice to try to cover this up because at the end of the day, and this is a very good example, covering it up, just makes everybody feel worse about it, not just the victim, but also the public. And I think that it contributes to the general mistrust around NDAs. Yeah, it is definitely a case that has uh, caught our attention. I'm sure we'll be talking about it more. Julie, your insight is second to none, and I really appreciate you making time for us today back on the East Coast. So let's speak again. You're welcome. Thank you. It's my pleasure. Thank you. You know, BC's got lofty plans when it comes to these housing targets. You hear all the different politicians, federal, you know, (laughs) provincial, regional, all talking about how they're going to meet the demand right now for housing in our markets. But the only problem is, and this is a story that's just coming out, is the lack of planners. And this is a pretty big deal when it comes to urban development. So to talk a little bit more about this, Michael Geller of the Geller Group, architect, planner, real estate consultant, kind enough to join me. Michael, good afternoon. Good afternoon. Well, I'll keep it as simple as I can. Why don't we have enough planners? Well, before I answer that, I do want to clarify, that's not the only problem uh, that could impact the amount of development that proceeds. Obviously, there are other things, including the adequacy of services and so forth. But there's no doubt that the policies that were recently announced by the province have significant ramifications for every municipality in the province. And it means every municipality is going to update its zoning bylaws and plans and keep working towards development of new official community plans. And that's going to require a lot of work. 
at the same time, there's no doubt that as many planners get older, there have been a number of retirements. And so there are these two things sort of coinciding. But the main thing is just the amount of additional work that's going to be necessary to implement the provincial policies. You know, in researching this, some of the things that I came across is when it comes to planning, uh, you'll see some that'll work for 10 years and then go off and do something different. We talk about words like burnout. How would you describe the current situation for those who are actively planning as we speak? Well, I think, to be fair, it varies from municipality to municipality, but there's no doubt that, uh, well, we don't necessarily see as many homes being built that we would like. There are a lot more applications that have been going through the system. Unfortunately, because of construction costs and financing costs, these projects have not gone ahead, but they have had to be dealt with by the planners. And of course, there are you know, numerous high-profile situations like a recent application in uh, the district of North Vancouver that went through five nights of public hearing. And, and, and things like that certainly do create more demand for the uh, planner's time. So what would you do to entice somebody? Because, you know, um, you talk about people that get into the courses at university, that do their, you know, apprenticeships, that work their way up to becoming an active planner. How do you entice them? I mean, the cost of living in this province is through the roof. You talk about all the negatives. What is a positive? What could you do to grip somebody into this career? Well, you just answered a major negative. (laughs) I mean, a lot of planners would love to come to British Columbia work here. Uh, It's a very exciting place to work but they can't afford. And ironically, this uh, Monday, I gave a talk in uh, Northwest Vancouver to a, a women's club. And one of the questions was, did I recommend architecture and planning as a profession? And uh, if their son did, in fact, pursue one of these professions, would he earn enough to be able to move out of their basement house, <laughs> basement suite in their house? And uh, I said, well, hopefully they would. But No, there's no doubt that uh, these are public sector jobs, the majority of them. The salaries are somewhat restricted, and uh, and there's a lot of work. There is a lot of burnout. But, I mean, I'm a professional planner. I mean, from my point of view, I did work in the public sector. I work in the private sector now. It's very gratifying work. The one thing, though, I think should be pointed out is there's going to be an incredible amount of work leading up to June 30th because that's the deadline the province has imposed for all the municipalities to change their bylaws to accommodate these new policies. But I would like to think that after that date, because the province is also saying a lot of projects that previously had to go through rezoning and through lengthy public hearings, they are trying to simplify that process. And perhaps I'm being a little bit uh, naive, but I would like to think that as a result of those policy changes, the workload after the 30th of uh, June could could be less than it has been in the past. Hmm. Although uh, the planners will still have to start dealing with a number of new applications uh, for the benefit of our listeners. These are applications where people can start building four or up to six homes on single-family lots that previously were restricted to a principal dwelling and maybe a laneway house or a a basement suite. 
So that could be significant. Although, as I mentioned in the very beginning, uh, the province has acknowledged that because of high construction costs and interest rates, and to some degree, the adequacy of services, they're not expecting a lot of these applications to come through, you know, especially in the initial years. Hmm. That's a really great way to finish this, Michael. Thank you for all the insight. And we're going to chew on this throughout the rest of the show, but your insight is second to none. And hopefully you'll stop by again and we can continue this conversation. Thanks for your interest. All the best. I wanted this to happen in a big way. There was a motion put forward by the Parks Commissioner um, to have accessible sensory, uh, sensory parks and apparently it's not going to happen, at least for now, to talk a little bit more about this and uh, the topic as a whole. Jazz Ferdy, ABC Vancouver Park Board Commissioner, kind enough to join us. Jazz, good afternoon. Hi, how are you? I'm okay. Well, let's get into this in its simplest form. What happened? Okay. So first of all, let's, let's forget about the motions. Let's forget about the amendments. I want you to picture a father taking his, or father or mother taking their child to the park. And their, char- their child... Um, experiences a sensory overload or a meltdown and there's other parents in this park that judge that parent so you know what the the parent decides to go home he doesn't want to go through this he doesn't want his child to go through this the next day the same thing happens he takes them to another park and the same thing happens eventually they get to a point where the parent no longer wants to take the child to the park because you know He's being judged. Um, they're being judged, and the child's being judged. So it leads to a process where they, they stop going to parks altogether. So the basis of this motion was actually to create a destination park, a park where all kids can come together and enjoy the park without being judged, and parents with, without parents being judged. It was to create a culture and a community um, and this can only be done if we, we built a destination park. And what was passed last night was actually a piecemeal approach where the money would go to five individual play areas and not a park, play areas. And there would be, the funds would be spread so thinly that there would just be a couple features in one park and maybe in a couple in another park. So it doesn't, it doesn't build that culture, which we would get with a flagship park. So you were looking for an entire park designated for sensory situations as opposed to just like a little corner off in the left. Exactly. And, and that's what all the speakers were talking about. They weren't talking about these piecemeal projects that we've already been doing because they haven't been working. And there were roughly 40 speakers out that night and parents were crying and asking for, you know, a flagship park where we can have like thought out sensory areas, thought out accessible areas. I mean, um, last night they were talking about certain parks that they just built um, that were great. They said they were accessible, they were um, sensory friendly. But I pointed out, like, how do you call this accessible when you have wood chips there? You have, you don't even have a, a swing for a child on a wheelchair. How is that accessible? I want to play you a clip. Uh, we had Brennan Bastiavansky on the Jill Bennett show just a couple of hours ago. I'm going to play the clip, and then I'm going to get your reaction to this. Hold tight. There were amendments made. That's just part of, you know, the course of how things work. Uh, but the point is, is that they got upset because it was changed. And Ken is also throwing a tantrum by announcing the transition team tomorrow morning. So it's a big distraction that he's not getting his way. So he, they fabricate that press release saying it didn't get approved, but the motion did get approved. 
And he's now trying to bring another distraction by announcing a transition team tomorrow. And all of this is just pageantry because he needs a distraction from the budget. He promised that he would lower taxes, and instead he delivers not just one, but two of the highest tax increases in the city's history. Uh, None of it goes towards parks. I mean, even his flagship uh, promise about developing a sensory playground, he wouldn't put a nickel towards it. What are your thoughts to that statement? So this is exactly what's what's wrong with the park board. I mean, we didn't listen to the 40 speakers that came out that night telling them that these little piecemeal accessibility sensory parks don't work. They wanted an entire park. And I'd like to differentiate between a playground and a park. A park includes a playground, but it's much larger. And it's it it can have other sensory features. It can have places families can retreat to when when their child has has a breakdown. So these are the things that nobody listened to. And we, we talk about the park board being a unique place where people come and, you know, you can you can say what you want and we take it and we listen to it and, and that's how we work. But they just went ahead and said, yeah, we did it. We did it. But they didn't, they didn't listen to the people. I mean, I don't know if you saw the statement put out by the Pacific Autism Family mm-hmm. Network. They said that what was passed last night was not what we were asking for. It was more of a slap in the face. And it was just like, we know what we're doing. And that's it. And we're going to continue doing what we've been doing. Well, we will have Sergio Cochia on just after five. He's the president and board chair from the Pacific Autism Family Network to cover this and uh, give it a little more depth. You and I share a similarity. We both have somebody within our family that's on the spectrum. So this is obviously something that's personal to you as well, no? Yeah. So uh, like, this brings me to my other point. This is not just about neurodiverse children. This is also about children with mobility issues. If you, if you take a neurotypical child, for example, or um, a child that doesn't have a wheelchair, has no issues um, walking or anything like that, they're able to play in every aspect of a park without an issue. But for example, a child in a wheelchair goes to a park, they say it's accessible, but there's not even a swing. You know, in all of Vancouver, there's not even a uh, wheelchair accessible swing in all of Vancouver. And for me, that's so hard to believe. Hmm. And, and when we do parks that say we're accessible, we give them one or two play features. I want it so all these children can play in the entire park. Well, I've got a background. I helped the Vancouver Canadians build their challenger field, their field of dreams right beside Nat Bailey Stadium, which is an inclusive field that allows wheelchairs accessibility across the board. And it took a long time to get there, but they got it there. So, um, I know it can be done, and I'm hoping that eventually this um, this one passes too. Chaz, thank you for your time today and for the insight. I will continue this conversation throughout the day, but uh, hopefully we'll speak again. Awesome. Nice, nice meeting you. Well, when it comes to the Jericho lands, obviously this is a great piece of real estate that a lot of people have had their eye on for some time, and now the controversy is uh, in front of council. When it comes to improving housing affordability, obviously they want to build out there. Some want skyscrapers, some want to limit it to eight levels. We'll talk about this with uh, Susan Fisher. She's the Jericho Coalition spokesperson, kind enough to join us this afternoon. Susan, how are you today? I'm very well, thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about this because obviously we need housing in this city. We know that Jericho's got opportunities out there. What seems to be the challenge from your perspective? 
Well, it's not clear to me that the proponent's plan actually is going to produce very much affordable housing. Um, if you look at the fine print and the policy statement, it does appear that the affordability of the project might be contingent on further support from senior levels of government. That they're not, It's not clear that they're going to deliver it from their sort of own profits, which is typically the way it's done. Also, you know, about a quarter of that site is owned by the Canada Lands Company, which is, you know, an agency of the federal government. In other words, that's still public land. We don't understand why the federal government, which has promised to make housing affordability kind of number one in its financial agenda, why it doesn't step in and ensure that that property, which it still owns, um, why isn't that dedicated to affordable housing? You know, when we say affordable, of course, there's a huge range of people. There's some people who need supported social housing, but there are lots of people with good education, good jobs, who really can't afford, of course, to buy in Vancouver. And even rent is getting um, very difficult for people. You know, even those people with good jobs, teachers, nurses, paramedics, and people who own small businesses. Somehow, if we're not going to turn Vancouver into kind of an empty resort city, uh, we have to create housing that, and secure housing uh, for people like that. We need them in our city. And I just don't see much in the plan um, that's going to create that. Also, this is like the best land in Vancouver, right? It's the biggest housing project Vancouver's ever had. Uh, we really need to do it right. Well, I, I you know, We'll see. I'm not sure if it's the best land as they're still working to get public transportation out there, but I understand where you're coming mm-hmm. from. Uh, obviously, analytic is a, piece, a big piece of this puzzle. Survey after survey after survey has been done on this. Uh, how do you feel that these surveys have been executed? Do you feel that the numbers are skewed? Do you feel that they're proper? Like, have we done our proper due diligence on this? Well, I sympathize with the people in the planning department. It's extremely hard to get a truly representative picture of what people want, especially because a lot of people had no idea what was being planned for the Jericho lands. So there had been earlier surveys done in the community, which were very um, opposed to high-rises. This is before MST even came up with a specific plan. So there's those surveys. Uh, Then there was the Shape Your City survey conducted, by the city, and you know, people could just um, sign up and express their views. So some people have said, "Oh well, it's just people in the postal codes around the lands who um, commented through that survey." But I'm not sure that that's true or fair. But I don't know. Then the city com- commissioned another um, survey from a market research firm that had a panel, and many of the people on that panel. Um, did not know about the land, so there was kind of an information session that went along with it. So I don't think that was exactly a fair representation of what people might feel about this development. Hmm. Susan Fisher, I'm I'm sorry, Susan, I was just going to reintroduce you. Susan Fisher is with the Jericho Coalition. She's a spokesperson on behalf of them, joining us here on CKNW. Susan, uh, I'll try to keep this as simple as I can. Obviously, we need housing. There is no doubt about it. Are you more concerned with the height of the buildings or are you worried about the affordability or is it a combination of both? I just want to know where your coalition stands right to the final grain because the reality is is nobody ever gets everything that they want. So what would be your compromise to get this done and get some people in some housing? Absolutely. Of course we care about affordability. Um, but we've come up with an alternative plan um, that's much more 
we think much more family friendly. It could be built uh, with prefabricated modular components. So I think it could be more affordable. It could go up much faster than those concrete high rises. It wouldn't have as many units, but the units would be, I think, more suitable to that for that missing middle group um, in our society. I don't think it has to be super dense the way the proponents um, have suggested. I don't think, you know, I don't think building high rises is the answer. Also, you know, 70% of the units in the proposal um, will be leasehold. They'll, they'll be sold on the market just the same way the leasehold uh, projects out at UBC are sold. So they won't be affordable. So that means, you know, 70% of those high-rises actually are not going to help many people in Vancouver at all. Those will be um, probably opportunities for investors, not really homes for people who live and work in Vancouver. All right, Susan, thank you for your time today. I do appreciate it, and I know that there has been a, a very busy day in front of council, so uh, we look forward to seeing what progress is made, and uh, your time is valuable. Thank you, Susan. Thank you very much for having me. Bye-bye. Well, we talked about it last hour, the Pacific Autism Network, one of many who was a little taken aback by the uh, lack of progress when it came to a, a fully accessible sensory park here in Vancouver. To talk about that a little bit more, uh, Sergio Kokia, board chair and president of the Pacific Autism Family Network. Sergio, good afternoon. Hi, Rob. Well, you wrote a rather uh, passionate letter to uh, the board talking about the fact that despite all of the voices that stepped forward to speak on behalf of this, that whether it was the families or individuals that stepped forward to say we need this, uh, kind of felt like nobody was listening. Do you still feel that way this morning? Yeah, given given the amendment that they uh, eventually passed, uh, along with an additional amendment that was added to it, it still doesn't appear to me that they were listening. When I look at what was proposed, uh, initially, I shouldn't say proposed, what was promised, uh, it feels almost as if they were trying to do something, but it's definitely not enough, and it almost feels like it misses the mark overall. Would that be a fair assessment? Yeah, Rob, I guess, from, from my perspective, I mean, there's good people. I'm sure they were all well-intentioned, but they, they asked us, they, they posted a, uh, a motion that was to build a sensory park. We brought out close to 40 families and individuals who came and spoke about it, the importance of a century park, the importance of what we as a community uh, could do at a location like that. And, you know, 40 individuals and families with autism on a dreary Monday night to go to park board office without transit and stuff. It was a hardship for many of these families. It's difficult for them to stand up there and be as brave as they were to tell their stories. It just, what, was, what got in my craw was after they finished, within moments, there was this strike and replace uh, motion that was put forward that at the end of the day really just directs staff to report back on some progress from another uh, motion that was made and, uh, and and played lip service to what we believe we were talking about. And I, I was hot when I wrote the letter. I just felt that our families deserve better. Sergio, when you saw this happening in real time and you looked around to see some of the other people in the room with you, what were some of the um, looks that you were getting from your peers? And were there tears? Were there frustrations? What were there? There were tears and a lot of frustrations. I, I think right now we now know that obviously there's some things going on at City Hall when it comes to the park board. Is this something that you think once Ken Sim makes the, the shuffling of the deck, so to speak, and brings in a, a different philosophy, that this is something that could go right back on the table and hopefully get addressed? Well, from, from your lips to his ear, Rob, I, mean, <laughs> I, I certainly hope so. That sounds exactly like what we, what we would like. And we know that the mayor issued a, uh, 
a statement that uh, after they passed this uh, resolution saying uh, that he he would continue to to support this endeavor and uh, we're very proud and happy of that. Sergio Kokia is the board chair and president of the Pacific Autism Family Network here on CKNW. Sergio, I know you personally and your wife do a lot of philanthropic stuff around the community. You've been doing it for years and we're so grateful. But let me ask you this. Do you think that dollars and cents had anything to do with this? I was kind of trying to read and find some fine print that said maybe if we got some more private money that maybe we could push this through. Is this a case of just somebody trying to pass the buck? You know, and, and that would always be the case. I want to, I want to one echo back the uh, sentiment. The work that you do, talking about yourself and your family, even an hour ago and stuff, is incredibly important. And thank you for that, Rob. Thank you. I, I agree with you. Like I understood from the very beginning, the weakness that was told to me by many of the commissioners was the fact that this did not talk about money. So last night they added another addendum that talked about asking the city for five million dollars, if they wanted to be true to what they had heard. What they should have done was added that clause to the original motion, rather than adding it to a motion that talks about these, this motion from 2022. So there is no logical uh, uh, reasoning behind the way I, I see they raised this. I think the issues that they had could have been addressed in the original motion, but instead they threw out this motion that 40 people spoke to. They just threw it out in their entirety, which... As somebody new to the parks board, certainly seemed political to me. You beat me to the question. I was just going to say that. I just feel like the timing of everything that's going on right now with the park board and Ken Sim, I almost feel like this was uh, maybe the final, you know, the final sword in the back, if you will. Sure sounds like it, yeah. Ah, Sergio, I'm sorry to hear this. Well, I can tell you this. We will keep pressing this issue. We will keep talking about it. But um, thank you for your perspective. And let's talk again. Thanks, Rob. Really appreciate it. You know, it is one of those things where you find a do-gooder and you want to shine some light on a situation. So obviously we've been looking back and forth on this transit strike and, you know, are the buses going to be running or the SkyTrain going to be running? So there was this brief pocket where, yes, there were certain people that couldn't get from A to B. So Nadia Necheva said, you know what, here's the deal. I will drive you for free during this transit strike. So, yeah, let's get into this. Nadia, kind enough to join us here on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Nadia, good afternoon. Hi, how you doing? I'm good. I'm better now. Let's talk about this. What made you say today's the day I'm just going to open up the car door and if you need help, I'm the person to do it? Um, I just figured people were in a pickle. It, it's really hard to get to the SkyTrain from a lot of areas, especially in my neighborhood. So I had the time off work and figured I would just be a nice person. And, you know, I'm looking at the posts that you said, I'm available as of 1030 tomorrow on Monday, right through until Wednesday. I will happily accept some gas pitch, but no minimum because times are tough. So you even took into consideration that, you know, not everybody's uh, financially stable. That's such a nice thing for you to do. Is that how you normally are? Is this just you, an open door policy? Um, Pretty much. Yeah. I, uh, I have a life motto, do good recklessly. And I'm always down to help anyone in need, regardless of the situation. If I can help, I'll do it. Did anybody take you up on this? Um, I, yeah, I had about six or seven rides um, Monday as well as Tuesday. Yeah. Did you have anybody that was just sitting in the back, like chewing your ear off, saying how nice you were? Like, what, what are some of the conversations like, or is it just get me from A to B? Um, people were super friendly. I actually met a few people that I plan to continue friendships with, which I think is really cool. Um, and I met an, an older man who 
uh, hitchhiked all through Europe, but he told me all of his cool hitchhiking stories. That's fantastic. I, I, I do have to, and I'm a father to a daughter, so I have to ask you this. Weren't you worried for your safety at any point? Um, not at all. Uh, most of my requests were through Facebook, and it was mostly women. So I felt comfortable. Now, I noticed in one of your pictures that you got a, pu- a couple of puppies in the background of one of those photos. <laughs> are those your dogs? They are, yeah. That's Taco and Belle. They uh, were pretty mad at me for being gone all day Monday, so I brought them with me on Tuesday. So somebody gets into your car on Tuesday, they meet you, and then they meet your two dogs, Taco and Belle. Yes. <laughs> they definitely brought some extra smiles, for sure. Walk me through this. How did you get to the name Taco and Belle? Um, I don't know. It was just kind of a fluke. I first got Taco, and then I ended up adopting his sister, and I just thought it was a funny combo. <laughs> so is it, is it Belle spelt with an E at the end of it? It is, because she's a princess. Of course. Yeah, I was, I, I was told I was not allowed to name my kid Buff. Because then his name would be Buffet. It would not, wouldn't have gone over well in grade school. I, before, before I let you go, Nadia, and I think it's so cool that you made time for us this afternoon, there is rumblings that there might be uh, some more stoppages. Do you think you're going to open up the car door again and keep this going? Um, as long as I'm in town, absolutely. I, I travel for work, so I'm not always around. But, yeah, if I'm here and I'm free, I'll do it. Is Vancouver home for you? It is, yeah. Amazing. I, I just I keep thinking to myself, here it is, the bus strike, and everybody's you know upset with what's going on. And you know what? A good Samaritan shows up and says, I'm going to help out. So tell you what, thank you for everything that you did in the community, and thank you for setting an example, and maybe we'll get a few more people to do this. I hope so. I want to inspire people to do good recklessly. Very cool. Thank you. And say hi to Taco and Bell before you, go, before you stop for the day. <laughs> I will for sure. Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.